0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. With the support of listeners and guests, we want to find out what's going really well and what really requires improvement. Uh, my name's Nick. Uh, I'm a humanities teacher just outside of Bristol and I'm joined uh, today by Tom,
1: a humanities teacher in Bristol.
2: I knew an uh, English teacher in Bristol. I'm Charlie. I'm a primary school supply teacher.
1: I'm Lee.
3: I'm a local secondary teacher and a union rep. Um, today we will be
0: joined uh, in a discussion with our second guest uh, on the podcast, uh, and that is uh, Vivian. Do you want to say hello? Hi. Uh, that's Vivian. Uh, he, Vivian is a 34-year-old um, foundation governor and inner city Church of England primary school. Uh, we mention the age just because um, you normally think of governors as being kind of old doddery kind of uh, people with grandparents but um, yeah it it is relevant. Um, He's an active member of his local parish church uh, which is also in inner city uh, Bristol uh, and it's also Church of England. Um, We think this moment in the electoral cycle is a good time to talk about faith schools since we predict the Tories will announce to expand them Uh, but it also links with with, uh, selection in education more generally. Um, Stand by for more Tory chants about how grammar schools create a meritocracy. We will be analysing the main party's educational election offers very soon, uh, but now let's do our first segment. So, who requires improvement this week? Charlie, do you want to go first?
4: I am going to go first. My requires improvement uh, in the wake of this uh, general election announcement is that um, I require improvement, and we all do, because we need to up our game, make sure that this one is a win. And of course, uh, maybe some listeners holding their breath, wondering who's it going to be a win for. We're hoping Labour. Are we not? Everyone in agreement with that? Yeah, Yeah,
5: seconded. Yeah, Yeah,
4: good. Uh, Not that I was too worried about that. But yeah, we all need to do everything we can. This one is the big one. I don't think there's going to be another shot quite like this one. So it's really important that we're out canvassing. We're online as much as is healthy. Uh, telling people engaging those you know healthy and positive conversations uh you know get your posters out get leafleting get doing everything because yeah it's really important especially as educators that we're reminding people of what it's like in schools at the moment how it's getting worse and worse and how so crucial it is for change and that change is going to come with a Labour government and a labor manifesto but yeah that's
0: but charlie i'm in the labor party but uh i don't I don't know enough about politics, really, to go canvassing. What should I do?
4: I think uh, that's a concern that many have, definitely a concern that I've had in the past. Uh, I haven't actually done as much canvassing as many of my comrades. Um, So it's going to be something, because it's so important, I think, yeah, I'm nervous about too, but there is so much support out there. It's going to be really difficult having an election that's going to be during Christmas. Uh, People talk about the fact that the last uh, winter election, like in this time um, period of the year, was in uh, 1923. And that was a time when Christmas wasn't even as big and considered as much a holiday as it was now. So it's going to be hard uh, because it's going to be cold, but we're all going to be supporting each other. There's going to be loads of information out. But I think, um, as been said before, you've got to go from your heart. So if you're a teacher and you've seen all these things on the front line, if people are discussing with you, um, their concerns you could address that and of course you've got to listen but also not just bring it from a this is the party line but make it personal you know if you're on the doorstep say what's concerning to you as as a individual as a voter don't just say oh i'm a volunteer i have to be um just a, a labor soldier uh and follow a certain line um be authentic be yourself would be my response to that
1: um yes, yeah, so i'll um kind of link Sieg very, very nicely to Charlie's wonderful point. My requires improvement. um, Initially, it was going to be the Tory um, education policies and our upcoming manifesto requires improvement, but we clearly, from a very partisan position, want their education policies to be as terrible as possible to make the Labour ones more attractive and more appealing to the voters. Um, So my requires improvement will be the Labour education manifesto.
4: So, what about the two thousand seventeen uh manifesto do you reckon could be improved upon many things? I'm shout out there it is
1: uh well, I think the big um thing we need to be wary of is the um twenty seventeen election um I think the statistic I saw was um um Seven hundred and fifty thousand people, their vote was decided on the issue of school funding, as in the Tories were not funding schools. Uh Labor promised to fund schools. And I can remember reading when they went to kind of the marginal constituencies that went um from blue to red places like Croydon Canterbury, the people they would find to give their opinions were kind of Um, Tory voting teachers who said, I will never be voting Tory again over education. So I think um, Boris Johnson and the tactical political genius that he is realises with all these people are voting on education funding. Let's bung some more money to education. So we're going to see more money from the Tories promised on education, on improving school buildings, which was something um, that they um, scrapped in 2010. We're going to see um, a bump up and a pay rise for teachers. The last thing I read was um, starting salaries of 30000 for teachers, which is not inconsiderable. So um, I think where Labour needs to be strong is... Firstly, on improving on the 2017 manifesto and having a very clear line of attack on why the Tories cannot just magically find some money from the magic money tree, turn the funding tap back on and hope the last nine years or so haven't happened.
0: Um, So the big differences between the 2017 manifesto and this one um, on education um, I think it's going to be because the N.E.S. has been flashed out a little bit. Uh, namely, uh, we've got strong commitment from the leadership on um, abolishing Ofsted uh, and abolishing Sats. Um, up till now, the N.E.S. was a bit watery, and we didn't really know what it was about. Um, there was a lot of stuff in there about, you know, raising money, obviously, um, all all the good things buzzword wise, but nothing nothing really there um, in terms of detail. The one thing they did have there was, though was this idea of bringing schools back into uh, public control um you know most parents don't really have any love for the uh, multi-academy trust structure um uh they have a vague idea that you could become a governor uh, maybe that's how schools are run um, we'll talk about that um in a second with vivian because um it's it's, a, it's quite an important role in a school arguably but no one really knows what they what they do i, I would say most teachers don't know what they do um what were you going to say about uh, democratic citizenship? Yeah,
4: I was going to well, mention the fact that I went to the World Transformed uh, Policy Lab on democracy within schools. where we Basically, uh, we all went into a room, just any old person who um, was um, came along and bought a ticket. Uh, so people from all sorts of different backgrounds and we were discussing what we thought would be the best thing um, for making schools if we could... And our ideal world to make them more democratic and uh the world transformed organizers put this um, forward as a manifesto that they condensed down and so the outcomes of that were, were really good but what it really um highlighted for me was the fact that uh you can put dem- democracy into all parts of um, schooling um be it from the top right to the bottom um with children being having more uh autonomy uh, and saying what they think their school um, should be like uh, and also from their parents, from the teachers, and uh, from uh, the local community. And, yeah, uh, democracy in and everywhere, I think, should be part of the next Labour manifesto.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty sellable on the doorstep. And I'd say the Ofsted and the, the SATs thing. It, maybe not all teachers are up for it because they're a little bit wary of what's going to come in place of it, but I think it definitely... Um, it shows a direction of, of travel, and I think, um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it just has to be something we have to keep saying and um, and arguing about in the staff rooms.
1: Yeah, I think that um, that Ofsted line is going to be used as a line of attack by the Conservatives, as in this is, I think as you alluded to in a previous episode, Nick, um, this is Labour wanting to drive down standards. They want to turn all schools into crap schools. So I think that'll be an interesting argument to have about why Ofsted being abolished is a positive move and is actually going to improve education and is a vote winner. I think the Tories see it as hopefully a vote loser for for the Labour Party. Uh,
0: This might uh, take us on to Anu's requires improvement actually.
2: Um, Yeah, okay, so my requires improvement um, is about uh well it's it's linked to something that michael rosen is currently working on and it's about the lack of play in um curriculums in schools so a bit of context i um attended a michael rosen talk at the bristol festival of ideas recently uh which was amazing he's a very funny um engaging man so that of the show yeah (laughs) um yeah i did uh got a book signed uh, retweeted uh, all sorts uh with uh, my mate michael rosen um so yeah so went this chat uh, uh was essentially a launch of his new book um about the importance of play um so to just sort of um summarize what he what he sees play as he talks about play being um essentially a process of trial and error so um and and within play there is no well there's little fear of failure because there are no rules apart from the rules that you make up for yourself so um if indeed you want rules so um he talks about uh play being something that's sort of quite natural for us outside of schools uh, especially when we're younger we're encouraged to do it um but his idea is that we need more play within the formal kind of education sphere um um and the, the reason he sort of talks about again the background to this is that he talks about uh people being born into into a world that is um is structured so you have societal structures you had you have formal and informal structures that you you could sort of um passively accept and you could be a passive sort of um uh, you know actor in in the world and let these structures guide you um and he talks about play being there to um kind of ensure that you realize that you have um the potential to be an agent actually so through play through trial and error you discover that you have power um which i think actually is he talks about being psychologically important but i think it's a really um prescient idea that that um there's a Becoming an actor in the world is a is a it actually a very creative process. It's not about you kind of managing things and fitting into you know uh square pegs in in square holes. It's actually about you kind of um making mistakes have you know failing at things but realizing that it's okay and trying something new um and I think that's definitely something that i as an english teacher have have seen um it doesn't doesn't fit within my classroom you know I'm told that uh there are structures namely exams that you have to kind of fit your creative English ideas into sort of almost anathema to how you get to a point of writing an essay you know uh, if I'm going to write a good essay, I've got to go through this process of like imagine, imagining something, imagining something new, trying things out that someone, ta- you know, that I, well, dialogue basically. So I think play is also intrinsically linked to dialogue. So it's almost as if we're removing dialogue from classrooms as well um, from a young age, from a really young age. Um, so yeah, I just, I think that the, the idea that we, um, that we're removing this kind of playful imaginative aspect to education like fundamentally requires improvement because it is like i said like antithetical to learning to 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 being a productive if we want to put it like that a productive citizen um i don't think anyone's like made real change without imagining something that doesn't exist as well or that has existed in in kind of like a seed form um yeah so again like I do I do like to like wax lyrical on these big kind of philosophical ideas um but there are real kind of uh ways in classrooms that you can you can well play with things so for example in English um actually Michael Rosen did this he asked everyone in the audience to come up with a tongue twister uh which is it's a it's a it's an audience full of adults. So we're all, none of us are that used, I don't think anymore to like doing that kind of play and being that, that silly, you know, without any reason to be that silly, but he, and he gave us a few parameters cause we we're all sort of like looking at each other being like, what the fuck like I only know that um she sells seashells and I can't copy that because he's getting me he wants me to be imaginative how do I do that so he was like oh well you know some words sound good together like s's are quite good to like mix up blah blah um he's like and then talk to the person next to you which again is another kind of thing that we only teachers know um or have experience when we're doing CPD because they because the powers that be want us to be kids when we're in cpd so i like, talk to the person next to you um so we're not afraid of it but a lot of adults are so i just turned to the person next to me and i was like right what wh- what are we doing here and we just came up with this admittedly pretty shit tongue twister <laughs> but like um what it was it? yeah it was yeah what was it? oh what was it it was um oh, i can't remember it was that shit um but there were no, a few um, good ones you know it was fun and it was sort of like and actually there were some really clever plays on words and that's the kind of thing how that does we was that make should- money though <laughs> um so i don't know we talk about he talked a lot about um a medics actually talked about medics and how the idea of you exploring anatomy is a complete like black hole if you're a first year medic um you know you want to be a doctor you know you're going to make money doing this you know that potentially well you're going to have an impact on the world that is positive but actually you start from a, a point of knowing nothing and having to play because you you're cutting open a body and someone tells you right you know I want you to uh, dissect the spleen and you're like oh shit is it that is that wiggly bit there is that bit that's sticking out there I don't know I'm gonna have to like have a go and see if it's wrong it's wrong if it's why right, you know great etc so like play enables you to like actually do the stuff of of like i don't know money making <laughs> work if that's how you want to put it so yeah it was, it was a great talk
4: yeah it's it's definitely something i totally agree with we need more <clears throat> we need more play in in every year group and every aspect of education it's funny that yeah you talk about like the theory behind it is so clear that yeah if, if you do things through play you do learn so much better i can't even remember the exact numbers but you know if if you want to learn a new skill it might take you x number of hours many many hours but if you learn it as a game you learn it like basically it's just like that it's, it's yeah. very very much quicker so you've got that aspect of it you've got um yeah the fact that uh, you know, the play that you talk about that you might have in secondary English, you know, that's going to be so much harder if you kind of gave up on play as a concept or someone uh, along the way gave up on play because, uh, you, know, s- you know, senior management tell them that um, they need to be at their desks doing formal learning. If that stopped at year one, like it usually does and you're supposed to weave it in maybe a little bit once in a while in an English lesson or maybe in a science lesson. Um, what what hope is there to make it as valuable and as powerful as it could otherwise be if we, if we structured our education system differently? Yeah.
5: I think um, th- there, there used to be a thing called mantle of the expert. Um, that was amazing when I saw it in a primary school where if, uh, say, Vikings was the, the topic for the term, then uh, creative writing would be about... Uh, like what you're uh, saving up to do with your gold, or like maths would be um, if twenty rapists are in one long boat, how many? <laughs> how many are in 20?
3: <laughs> how many nuns will survive?
5: <laughs> but I think what you say about imagining, m- imagination and creativity, we we seem to be in that form as humans, and like Winnicott, child psychologist, says that very much, and, and not just as children, but as um, as adults as well, and it that approach engages children with the subject matter and that's invaluable.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um I think actually the NEU um loves mantle of the expert. You the they motion do the conference. Well, they do a lot of like CPD with it. I, I personally I'm familiar with it, but um this idea of immersing yourself again i'm going to use my english background but like you're you're studying um i don't know world war one and and then you get your you you write you get people to sorry students to write diary entries as if they're world war one soldiers in the trenches you know like ultimately they're not going to do a creative writing exam that gets them to put themselves in the shoes of a world war one expert but um uh, sorry soldier but but it enables them; it gives them a way in. Um, also, I think it's invaluable in that instance as well uh, for cross-curricular learning to happen. Um, I don't think any of my World War One poetry lessons would have been as good if I didn't have done some history um, with my students. So, um, again, like you know, the kind of power of imagination and, and what, what lessons could be if we only sort of stopped thinking about learning as like, you know, learning English and then changing your mindset because now you're ch- learning history and now change your mindset because you're learning X, you know. Um, I think that, again, also requires a bit of playful imagination from the powers that be because um, there are better ways to to get kids to do exams if that's what you want to do.
1: Can I ask, um, I think, a linked question um to you as an English teacher, Anu? Um, so in my school, and I imagine it's the norm in all schools now, I'm thinking a particular of the play and inspector calls. And I, c- I remember very, very little of my secondary education. But I can remember that. I can remember very vividly that moment where like the penny dropped, uh, the twist is revealed at the end. Um, Don't ruin it. For those who haven't read it, I will not ruin the the twist in um, JB Priestley's and Inspector Calls. Um, But in my school now, and I assume it is, as I said, in most schools, they kind of, they give you a one-page summary at the start of your kind of course of learning this topic with the entire plot laid out in front of you. You know the end before you get there. Yeah. What do you make of that?
2: I mean... Uh, You know, with my English teacher hat on and I've got to get my kids to pass an exam at the required level of progress because otherwise I'm going to be in a, you know, dark room with a light shone on at me at the end of the year. Um, I have to do that. Uh, You know, if I'm teaching Romeo and Juliet, I've got X amount of time to do it. Um, And that's a a dense play for some kids with uh, reading ages of nine years old. You know, I've got to get everyone... Um, at the point where they know that play to the extent that they can and answer exam questions on it so um, personally I advocate that if you're teaching in a classroom um, you know in 2019 however uh, I mean god if you you know someone reveals the what happened in EastEnders you know to their mate and their mate kind of screwed. You've ruined my life for the day for me. You know, like where's that passion? Um, where's that? You don't get that with kids reading these books now because it's been removed from the the exploration as well. Like what do you think's gonna happen next is removed which is a, an integral part of them using their imagination and actually critically thinking about what's gone on with these characters in this context of Elizabethan or Jacobean England, where the situation of women is this the situation of uh, young girls with aristocratic fathers is this. What do you expect to happen next? Like, I you don't have to think about it. Um, that is not going to, that is going <laughs> to, I don't know. Are you going to go out of that room thinking that um, I kind of know a bit more about how the world works now because I've discovered it? I don't know. I,
0: I think the big, big yeah. problem is a lot of those kids have never seen a play and maybe they will never see a play. If the school can't take them to go and see plays, so that doesn't really make sense anyway. You've already take you're already analysing something completely out of context. It doesn't really make any sense. Um, but it's just you don't actually have time to let the kids be confused by something. You know, you don't have time for those themes to like bubble away under the surface and for characters to develop and for then the kind of the, the you know the thing to twist around and slap them in the face, which is what what, what it should be because everything is is something else now. What you're doing, you're not analysing a play. You're playing a you're playing another type of game yeah. but it's a pointless and shit game where there's winners and losers and it's of absolutely no consequence other than getting a piece of paper with a with a number on it
2: can I, can I just say one last thing as well so like the kind of mantra in my english lessons became like spoilers are essential um and like i totally agreed again i think the the pet the and my former boss i think is a scholar and a gentleman he's a very clever um imaginative guy but it, he got to a point even as head of department where he was just like do you know what Spo- at this stage spoilers are essential there are ways we can get them into words into into like passionately thinking about what they're reading but unfortunately we're gonna to have to ruin the end of these plays for them um which would be all right if we'd taken them to see it first you know if we get them to see the play first and then we go back and we study it but we we obviously don't have that option so um yeah spoilers are essential that's uh that's my takeaway from teaching English um
0: cool so it could be you know we don't need Ofsted to make it better we have a better school system by introducing play and these are things that pretty much everyone can uh, can get on board with. Uh, Manta the expert maybe needs to be something that we keep bashing away in the classrooms. Is something that is proven proven to work. Um, we got another requires improvement from Lee.
3: Yeah. So um, you know, it seems timely with this episode uh, that we reflect on the fact that um, whilst it might be a bit sleepy in your school. People might be a bit browbeaten. People might be a bit reluctant sometimes to stand up for themselves. Um, Everywhere, somewhere, in one place, or several at once, uh, teachers are fighting for their very existence. And uh, I want to give maximum solidarity and a shout out to both the uh, Chicago's Teachers Union. Over in the USA, obviously, and uh, you know the National Education Union. Uh, our many of our post-16 centres have been taking action this week. Uh, they've been on strike over the obscene government cuts to uh, you know post-16 education. Um, even you know have a fairly moderate outfit like the Institute for Fiscal Studies puts the funding cuts to post-16 centres at eighteen percent over the last nine years. Um, it's a massive, massive middle finger to uh, anyone who hopes to. Claw their way out of the situation via education. Um, the government are social criminals, to borrow a John McDonnellism there, um, and our members are absolutely on fire. Their right to be taking strike actions, try and you know get the level of funding that's even barely commensurate with running a, a sick form centre. Um, So, you know, um, we just, you know, hopefully you you might have seen them, you know, articles about both popping up in your newsfeed. But if you haven't, go check them out because, you know, they offer an inspiration and they are role models. And so if they're going to try and construe this into a requires improvement, it's clearly like everyone who's not considering taking action or not feeling the injustice and and the heat at that moment. It's,
1: you know, now or never really, guys. Tom. And I think to build on that in terms of um, taking action, uh, taking action in itself, I've always found a really um, positive uh, thing to do. A friend of mine who listened to this show and gave me some very positive feedback um, is a sixth form teacher who took strike action last week and will be taking further strike action Mm -hmm. in November. Um, Yeah, so he was on the picket line, um, a school nearby, a secondary school. The members there had a whip round and raised 70 pounds and bought um, the picketers' breakfast. And it's that kind of kind of everyday low level solidarity, um, I think is really powerful and really transformative. And um, a second point I'd like to make on that and to link it back to uh, the Labour manifesto, the 2017 manifesto um, did make a commitment and it seems like quite a small thing. And I think it's a thing that has been forgotten, but occasionally I remember it and I remember how brilliant it was as a policy and that's the educational maintenance allowance uh, the £30 um, a week payment that was given to, um, it was a means tested payment given to six former FE students and um, was um, summarily abolished in 2010 uh, by the coalition government, uh, Labour when they win the election in December will be bringing that back as well
0: Imagine voting against that for your own kids.
1: Oh they've not earned it though Nick <laughs> Um
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna do the opposite of uh, solidarity, I guess, because uh, my requires improvement is uh, the teaching union, the NASUWT. Um, So, yeah, there's any NASUWT blogs out there? Like, you know, come at us. We'll we'll do some. um, What what do you call it? Distract. We'll do the distract thing, and you know, we'll have a dance off or whatever. But dialogue. um, (laughs) dialog dance or whatever. Uh so we uh so I'll just go into a little bit of detail and um, so there used to be like three main teaching unions, the NUT, National Union of Teachers, the ATL, the Association of Teachers and Lecturers, um and the NASUWT, which I'm going to say wrong, but it's the National Association of School Masters and the Union of Women Teachers. Yes, not great. But the um the NUT and the ATL have merged. Um, all of us are uh, now in the NEU, the National Education Union, um, and we think there should just be one teachers' union. Really, um, the NAS, uh, as I'll abbreviate it to, um, exists separately, and we have lots of differences of opinion with them. But I'll just talk about their origin myth. It's not a myth. This is how they. This is how they. This is where they came about. Um, so the NUT has been around for like over a hundred years. Um, uh, you know, fighting for the rights of teachers. Um, obviously, like you know, a hundred years ago, there were schoolmasters who were male teachers, and there were um, you know women teachers. Who I think there were rules in certain areas and certain times where Not they weren't allowed to, to be married. married. Yeah, yeah. Um, things like the city restrictions. And again, there was a whole like difference between like you know the men would teach the kids that mattered. You know, in like the private sector or in the upper schools, and the 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 other bits of teaching were for women, and that was more of a kind of babysitting operation. Um, when some people in the movement started to talk about um equal pay um and the NUTs decided to fight for equal pay the National Association of Schoolmasters split off um and they said no male teachers should be paid more uh than their female counterparts um a little bit later on i think um the Union of Women Teachers also split off uh trying to fight for for women's pay um and those two unions existed separately for several decades until under the Oh, I can't remember which act it is but it's, something, it's the Equalities Act or the Sex Discrimination Act um, basically the two unions those two unions were forced to then combine um, which is a very very odd state of affairs two unions that existed specifically to oppose um, each other then forced to, to to coexist. Um and I'm not trying to I don't think any of us would um, want to berate any uh, NAS reps in schools like being a rep can be a tough job Um, The NAS have had some victories in some areas where the NUT weren't particularly mobilised. So, you know, I'm sure everyone could share some good things about the NAS. But um, just as a union, when we look at it from the NEU platform, they're they're not democratic enough. And they seem to just miss actually fighting on any of the issues. Um, They don't seem to do any kind of like public campaigning. And now they they seem to be a teacher's union only. Whereas we're an education union, you know, we fight for education to be better. We fight for the rights of support staff and um, teaching assistants and everyone involved. Um, the NAS are very proud to be a teachers' union. They just want teachers' rights to be and working conditions to be as good as possible. Um, and just they've just come up in the news recently because their um, general secretary, um, who's been in place for about fifteen years. Um, has been found or they've admitted that they're in breach of the law because they've overstayed their elected term um, under trade union law. Um, But they're still just going to carry on in that role for a little bit until they retire, because apparently that's that's okay. Um, There's not been a contested NAS election in 30 years for the head role. It's just always been like some kind of insider candidate. Um, that's taken it each time. I don't know what other, what other people's thoughts are. you know, and some people are saying that the NAS are, are done. you know when when this uh, when this general secretary um, stands down, they will sort of fall to pieces um, because they've kind of outlived their usefulness. Uh, what do other people think on this?
1: I think on that um, first point about um, the kind of the shady going on shady goings on rather at the top of the NAS, I think it's really dangerous from a wider trade union perspective, um, considering the attacks we are under as trade unionists and our right as trade unionists, that's basically a stick that um, uh, the right wing can beat us with. Oh, another corrupt union. It's just like the 70s and on and on and on. So I think on a wider level, I think that's pretty shameful.
4: I'd say my point would be, yeah, we, we mentioned about the fact that uh, we all think that there should only be one... Uh, education union. I'm not sure just one. Yeah, I think we need to eat that one out a little bit more because there's lots of things that would improve our sort of ability to um, actually change things as a union. And it would be good if, you know, the NU was bigger and bolder and a lot of the people uh, who work in schools uh, were in a union, preferably the NU. Uh, that would make a huge difference. But forcing there to be only one. In whatever way, wouldn't necessarily.
0: No, yeah, not, that,
4: how how do we come about that that to that outcome?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm um, not sort of advocating the closed shop idea, and I sort of used to think, okay, maybe it's good to have more than one union because you know, if you had a rep that you hated, um, you know, or something wasn't going right in your workplace, you had a bit of choice. But to be honest, I think the NEU structures, well, they allow for for elections anyway and I think it kind of would be help in the way that we advocate open selection for MPs I think it actually would be helpful in a lot of schools to have um, to have more elections for reps actually um, it would be difficult to, to sort of try and campaign against someone who's working hard you wouldn't want to put people off but there are some reps in schools who kind of are a little bit stuck there and no one's quite sure what they do Um so I don't know. I, I guess what it would have to be is the NAS coming over to the N, to the NEU. But um, I don't know. What were you thinking? Having other little unions?
4: Yeah, I think there's there's lots of smaller unions. In yeah. fact, when you look at, um, I don't really know the number of uh, education unions, but I know broadly there are thousands and thousands of unions, and it doesn't necessarily mean um, that the, there's so many means that things don't get done. There are actually small unions that are very effective in in their um, sector, but um, yeah, it's my point was not so much any you being as bigger and better is a would be a bad thing. More that um, issues within other unions that are corrupt or just um, have um, bad politics or um, bad practice um, doesn't necessarily mean that we get rid of them all, as, as you said. But yeah. I think
0: well, but I don't think I don't think it's up to the NAS to sort of prove why we should care if they disappear because they you know they they sort of don't even really care about funding they don't really seem to whip to complain about that um, they their main the main thing they're campaigning on at the moment is behavior but they kind of comes across like they just sort of hate kids and I sometimes hate kids but uh, in terms of my role as a union rep it's it's not it's not about that it's been really really positive when we've we've been fighting for our own paying conditions but we're saying that we're doing it for the kids and I just don't
1: get that from anything the NAS have ever put out I think from, from years on end when the reporting does come from the NAS conference and I'll concede that may be wholly unfair I mean the amount of times NUT and NAU conferences have been misrepresented but I think year on year it does seem to be the NAS sit around and be like oh well for some reason behavior's got really really bad and the parents are being really mean to us Um, totally uncritically with no kind of concept of austerity or what has been going on in the wider world as if the the school they work in is somehow divorced from the community they serve and again that's not um to criticize the nas or nas members nas reps certainly not um that is the impression they get sorry and i think um Historically, the NAS have also paid lip service to the idea of professional unity, as the NUT did. But I think the NUT and the ATL, um, who um, have two very, very different traditions and different histories, I think they did take um, a leap of faith and a step into the unknown to merge and form the National Education Union, uh, the fourth largest union in Britain. Um, But I don't know if the NAS are still... um, parroting that line of we are for professional unity because, but just not with you guys who are the half a million members or whatever it is in the NEU, which again would seem um, a little bit strange. Yeah.
0: Cool. So um, let's get on to uh, our guest then. Uh, (laughs) He's still here. Sorry, we've been going on a bit. Uh, I'm not sorry. Um, We, um, I guess we could start by saying... I don't know, Vivian, what does a governor do or what do you do in your role? Um, Well,
5: the role of a governor is is often described as being a critical friend. It's a bit like being a charity trustee, but with less um, executive authority. The idea is that um, people from the community, uh, parents, staff, and in my case, where there is a school with a, a religious character, um, people appointed by some relevant authority uh, to that, to represent um, a group of people who will um, be there to challenge and encourage uh, senior leadership. There used to be a thing called community governor, but uh, that's gone. You can guess when. Yeah.
4: Um, so one question I have is if a... Teacher, I've I've known teachers who were governors themselves, uh, who didn't feel they could uh, point out something was wrong. But if a teacher, generally uh, at the school you work at, felt that something was wrong, if they went to you, uh, what could happen and what would happen? Do you think? Uh,
5: Then it uh, becomes a matter for the agenda. I mean, properly speaking, that would usually be best done by speaking to either the staff governor or directly to the chair of trustees. Um, Hopefully, the school would have a decent complaints policy. I would think. But uh, if it became like a, a strategic issue, then it should be brought to attention of governors, definitely.
4: So um, it would be difficult for them to do it like more privately. So it's not um, that sort of one-to-one sort of support. It would have to all be um, above board. And yeah, I, the only reason I ask is I think that um, one thing that uh, teacher governors and teachers in general find a bit intimidating is that sort of need for everything to um, in the first instance, uh, become like a public matter, it makes you very scared for your career. If you, you know, you're seeing maybe your school is not just one problem, but many, many problems uh, is wrong with it. And you see these governors coming in and um, they're smiling and the senior management's smiling and everyone's um, acting like everything's fine. And you're going, but everything's not fine. And so I have had in the past in my head, are they bad? Because uh, the fact that they're allowing this to happen, or are they just completely um, kept away from all the difficulties that uh, in our school we're hiding them? Because if if we really were allowed to say it, it would just open up a can of worms that, um, well, that, that could yeah risk the teacher who in question maybe pointing out his career and uh, generally uh, put a whole bunch of what senior management might see as negativity. Uh, that ultimately results in nothing?
5: Yeah, sure. I mean, school governors should be approachable and um, be there to talk to people privately, uh, whether that's staff, parents or children. Uh, But um, ultimately, the role is is that strategic one so that uh, that can feed into that governor's thinking. They might want to raise it as an issue or have another private conversation. But ultimately, you know, governors aren't involved directly in the management of schools. So there's only so much that um, only so productive that conversation can be but um, in a, a lot of governors have a real concern for staff welfare um, and uh, hopefully particularly in schools of religious character uh, might um, volunteer extra time to have a kind of a pastoral role perhaps. Um, I think that's something that governors are particularly good at doing, can be good at doing, um, and the strategic element of it uh, can be quite random in governorship uh, depending on why somebody wants to be a governor, uh, what their background and experience is in
0: education or in other sort of like professional roles or what they bring to the table, really. So um, how much do you think governors actually know about their schools? Because there are some, you know, so I get the feeling that in, in secondary schools, issues build up and build up and build up and build up and um, management are quite keen to hide those things from the wider community because... They're terrified of poor behaviour, um, You know, kids telling teachers to F off all the time, um, triggering an Ofsted. Um, I just wonder if uh, how much you think governors know about these things. They seem to be at quite a distance. Maybe it's different in primary schools um, just because the whole community is a bit smaller. But um, how, how do governors get an idea of what's going on in the school? Or do they just get it through senior leadership?
5: Well, governors ought to be acquainted with most of the policies which um operate in the school the level of knowledge that they have i guess is only as good as the um accuracy and honesty of reporting that uh, senior management will bring but in uh, my own school behavior attendance um uh, and learning are like quite closely monitored and honestly reported on so the uh, the role is to to pick up on things and saying well what's happening here looking for reasons that those statistics might be a bit skewed or looking for um, assurance that uh, blips and things are being dealt with Um, and just to understand the the kind of the wider context of why uh, attendance in a particular year group or, or class within a year group might be poor um, and to get to know the school in that way, I think there's the statistics on the paper, but the questions that that raises are where the, the sort of anecdotal kind of like touchy-feely knowledge come, comes in. But that's all confidential to uh, to governor's meetings as well.
2: Um, do you have, a, I know another governor and they've done learning walks before. So is that something you've done and, and how f- like frequently you do it and what, what guidance do you get? like for doing that
5: yeah learning walks are great fun uh, in my experience um they'll be a kind of a pro forma and be taken from class to class or maybe just sit in one class um it's meant to be quite light touch uh, governors are not usually educational experts uh but um it only takes a bit of now to kind of get a feel for uh, what the atmosphere in class is like how engaged a child is whether they want to be there whether they are understand for example um how behaviour is managed and so I asked um, a four-year-old about what would they do if you fell out with your friend and they were able to talk really eloquently about uh, how the school manages it, how they should manage it first, how they can bring it to their teachers' uh, awareness. Um, But, I mean, also you get to see what's on the walls, you get to see what kids are doing and whether they are creatively engaged. Uh,
1: Vivian, can you uh, tell me about your... um journey, please, Um, you seem to be um, a young man, youngish man, Um, (laughs) and the popular image I think many um, people have of governors is um, older people, Uh, so how did you become a school governor?
5: I was looking to volunteer in a a kind of a civic role, um, rather than just within my sort of own uh, sphere of awareness, I uh, knew a little bit about education, certainly something from my own experience that I um, value very, very highly. Uh, and so I was able to um, to volunteer in that way, and I would encourage other people too as well. If um, particularly if you have children, uh, but in the governing board that I belong to, there are probably people roughly my own age to whom would be parents. Um, there are staff my own age. Probably in terms of retired people, maybe it's about half. Uh, but yeah, I think that that image can can be. Uh, substantiated and, and sometimes it's it's not it's
2: just like your uh, average union committee isn't it so uh, <laughs> sorry
0: so vivian can you tell me um a little bit about well what what you perceive is the nature of um faith schools um you know what are the benefits what are the downsides what are they um and do the benefits you know o- overplay the downsides in your opinion
5: well i think if, you look, if you're looking at kind of how legis- faith schools are legislated, um, what, I think the question really is what opportunities are there? Um, to answer your question would be to look at each school. Every school is different and every faith school is different. For example, if you go to, in this uh, Anglican diocese out to Shurston or somewhere like that in Wiltshire, you're going to have um, a small, very white, largely middle class group why, though? Because that is the only school in the village and they're the people that live there. The four Church of England schools in inner-city Bristol are between 80 and 95% um, BME. That's a sort of not an answer, but that's all I've got to say <laughs> to start with. What do you, what do you make of that? Uh, so they're meant to be an inclusive place. Um, they're meant to be places which... Uh, will um, instill ideas of, of virtue, ideas of things that are important. Um, I can only really speak from my own experience about Church of England schools, and they will be different to, uh, say, Catholic schools or Muslim schools. Those two, there's a kind of advantage that um, schools of those religious characters can exist, and certainly because, as we see in um, some parts of the Midlands, and as was the case, say, in Liverpool 100 years ago, they allowed for... Uh, social um, and cultural groups who had a a sort of unified faith identity to be able to um, educate their children, to be able to uh, retain their community um, identities and while there are arguments against um, integration, I personally think that people integrate when they feel happy and welcome and it's not about some kind of overly managed dispersal of a group of people So there's an advantage to um, providing a home. Uh, In the Church of England, the official um, guidance, although that's not legally required, is that there aren't to be um, religious criteria in admissions. That's not the law. People can set those. Um, But the national vision for Church of England schools in England and Wales is that um, there to be a place of hospitality that the church provides um, to serve that local community, rather than any kind of like like paranoid ghettoisation, I guess.
0: Um so um I guess we could go into the criticisms of uh of faith schools. Um there is a criticism that uh faith schools, despite the law, they end up selecting um on religious grounds, but then that is a kind of um affront for really selecting on academic grounds or more about the sort of picking the right kind of child to go to a school. Um, you know, you can, and there's sort of jokes about, um, about this kind of stuff, but you know, little giving little Jimmy, a, a Catholic middle name and pretending to go to church every couple of Sundays just to get him into the really good Catholic school around the corner or like someone playing up their Irish heritage um just to get kids into a Catholic school. Um, if you look at the statistics on this, I think I'd, I'd, someone, um, Tell me I'm wrong if you want but I'm I'm anywhere where there is selection um you end up with fewer SEN kids you end up with fewer kids from impoverished backgrounds and that would be part of the argument into getting rid of faith schools we shouldn't be selecting on any basis because it's always going to favor people with more social capital um and capital and and clout like
5: that well, yeah, I'm sure that that can be true. And if there's a system, people will play it. But um, calling your, your child Michael Patrick is probably a lot more affordable than, than buying a house in a, in a middle class suburb. So fair play, if, that, if you want that child to go to that school. Um, I don't personally think that there should be faith schools with um, religious selection criteria. The legal maximum, I think, is 40%. And for new um, academies and free schools since 2010 is 50 um, this kind of like leads into the Tory horrible thing of going like, yeah, faith schools, we're going to get Britain back to traditional values. The Church of England would probably rail against that, really. That's not the mission of those schools. But the Church of England is the biggest kind of um, provider of schools with a religious character. And for, say, like uh, free Muslim schools or for Catholic schools, they will probably, because they're not the established church, have a different idea of what. It is that they need to be providing, and have a stronger sense of wanting to be able to have um, the the faith identity that is is core to their own um, communal sense of self uh, to be uh, alive and well in their children's education. Um, I'm not going to speak against that if that's what people think is good for their children, um, but maybe it's maybe there are better places for it to happen.
0: Um, so. Vivian, what is a faith school? Well, um, a vague term that um,
5: has no legal resonance. It's used very widely. Um, There are schools which legally have a um, religious character and uh, that will be present through um, the ethos of the school, which should be um, accessible to anyone who attends And, uh, it should also be, um, it will also enable certain levels of, uh, what you can do in RE. So it, uh, used to be, no, hang on a minute. So a, um, voluntary aided school of a religious character can teach its, um, uh, its own sort of native faith, if you like, as the truth, like catechistically, um, a voluntary control school can't most uh, schools of religious character in uh, England are voluntary controlled um, so that's also what a faith school is not I think it's used when in the media and such like to refer to brainwashed um, adherents of different faiths that walk around in like being bossed about by nuns or whatever and, and that that kind of thing is happens, but it's rare and it's not usually very legal. (laughs)
4: Um, I had a question um, about behaviour management in um, religious schools or faith schools. Um, I've worked um, in lots of different schools and when I've done training in particular, I noticed uh, that in some uh, Catholic schools, uh, it's sort of encouraged that um, behaviour management Um, and religion are kind of intertwined so there might be references to god or to jesus uh when you're reminding a child um of the appropriate behavior or something that they're doing wrong uh another aspect of it um i see is especially uh using certain times today and using the sort of ritual um as being a way of um keeping children quiet and on the level uh In the sense that, you know, coming in from lunchtime, everyone has to stand behind their desk um, with their hands together in complete silence. And to not be doing that isn't just, um, you know, you making a bad choice, but you um, genuinely um, doing something against your religion, against uh, the ethos of the school, simply by uh, talking or even whispering or even just doing something very minor. But because it's this sort of sacred time, uh, it is even worse than usual so would you have a comment on that how obviously that's a more extreme example but how uh, generally uh, behaviour management and religion intertwine?
5: I can only comment from my own experience and what I would say there is that um, most of the children in the Church of England School where I am a governor um, have uh, either a different or no um, faith adherence so the Behaviour policy is informed by um, things which are seen to, to or understood to be uh, Christian virtues, things like forgiveness, generosity, being long-suffering. Uh, but the, to my mind, intertwining what is just basic kind of like looking after children with uh, like religious imagery can be potentially spiritually abusive. So for me, a healthy school with a religious character has a distinctive but highly accessible and hospitable ethos which should contribute to and inspire good behaviour rather than be a tool for uh, policing through fear.
4: And to add to that, so going forward, if we are to, you know, continue to have faith schools, um, how are we ever going to stop there from being some schools that may do this? Like, it's not something that is written down in the curriculum um, of that school. It's going to say something like, you know, that the, the timetable of the day, say, is going to have um, prayer at certain times. How can you stop that from having an effect? Uh, at least on individual schools and, if, you know, there may be other religions uh, of schools that I've not worked out um, where they might have similar but different strategies for intertwining them. How could you ever stop it um, across the board?
5: Well, like a severe uh, behavioural policy can exist in any context. Um, uh, and it would be up to the local authority and for the school religious character, not just the local authority but then the um governing trust that that has set the deed for that school to ensure that they they believe that it's healthy um i don't think you can ever stop bad things uh happening even with the best will in the world um but hopefully there are checks in place like uh good governance to ensure that they don't
1: okay I have a question um to kind of look at that um the question of should there be religious schools or not, I want to look at it from a slightly different angle. Should we get rid of this idea of parental choice? And I'm thinking I've worked in two schools with, um I'd say in many ways, very unfair, negative reputations. Um, so I've often seen kids living literally next door to the school in uniforms of other schools, waiting for buses very early in the morning. Should we get rid of this idea of parental choice entirely? Well... But-
5: yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, I don't think that people... I think all schools should be supported properly, centrally and locally, so that they can all flourish and um, bring each child that they uh, come to in their area uh, to the... the not the, the best they can be, but to to who they are. Uh, all schools should be nurturing. Um, and if, if schools are like that, then... Why would you choose to to go to one rather than another? Except that um, some parents might want their children to go to schools of religious character. So it's a bit of a tricky question to untangle, I think. But I mean, yeah, ultimately, I, I wouldn't think I would hope that people would want to send their child to a good local school and that every school should be supported to be good for its community. And that's very much the vision of of Church of England schools is to serve their community rather than to um, enforce admissions policy based on uh, religious adherence.
1: I'm just I'm thinking more. Um, I'm thinking more my experience of religious schools. Um, so I'm thinking going back to when I grew up. Now my school was always very low down in league tables, and the top school year after year was always a Catholic school. And um, Nick's kind of mentioned that big joke of all the the middle class and um, kids and families in the area suddenly had a deep spiritual conversion to Catholicism around about their 10th or 11th birthday. Um, so it's this idea, religious schools, are they being, I suppose, abused by sharp-elbowed parents um, as, a, um, as kind of, a, I suppose, selection by the back door, really? Yeah, um, totally. I'm sharp-elbowed parents will abuse everything. So, would the then response to that be to kind of take away this idea entirely of parental choice? I'm not sure what that looks like. If it would just be you go to the school that is closest to you geographically, I suppose that opens up new contradictions of all well, that would just inflate house prices exactly, in areas yeah. where schools do have a good reputation. So, then I don't know, would the response to that be some sort of deep South American style busing system uh, to kind of break down social? Barriers. Um, I don't know. I just feel with my entire career, I've been v- very, very aware of teaching in schools that do not reflect the community they are in, as in certain um, groups, certain members of the local community will choose to send their kids to other schools. Um, I think, firstly, to the detriment of that school. Um, which I've always worked in schools with a really dedicated, brilliant um, teaching staff and a lot of brilliant, wonderful kids, I think they would benefit further from those schools being more socially mixed, either along kind of lines of ethnicity, uh, religion, and I think crucially uh, the big elephant in the room is always class. Um, I feel does the existence of religious schools, does that just add another layer of um, social division, really, I suppose.
5: Well, I think social division exists, but, um, and I don't think it's always fair for to lay the blame at the door of religious schools. As I've said, uh, some of the, the worst performing, or definitely schools in the most deprived parts of Bristol are church schools. Um, equally, there will be those which might be selective um, and which are subject to abuse by sharp elbowed parents, like you say. Um, But I think that the the social division is is what we're really arriving at here rather than the fact that schools with religious character exist. I don't think that they necessarily enforce that, although you've you've cited a good example where that is the case. Um, Certainly the Church of England's vision for church schools is to serve their local community, whoever that may be. And I've given examples of that.
3: Tom, Vivian, I think you've both raised fair points, but um, I've got a question for you both. What if we nationalised everything, (laughs) including the houses? Problem solved.
5: (laughs) Interestingly, the reason that um, most Church of England schools exist is because that they were nationalised and that they were provided uh, privately for the public by wealthy individuals or trusts in the Church of England. And after 1944. Butler Act, then they were taken into state running uh, with the guarantee that their special ethos or character would would be preserved.
3: Interesting. Um, Surprise question for you, Vivian. Um, How easy would it be for a lay member of the public to get onto the governance team at a Faith school, in the sense that you have experience of this,
5: uh, most people are lay. Uh, the, in a voluntary controlled school of religious character, the maximum number of um, people representing specifically the um, the ethos of the the founding trustees. So, in my in my case, the the Christian ethos is twenty five percent. And in a voluntary aided school, it's um, no more than fifty percent. They're usually in the minority. Uh, so, as easy as any other school is the answer.
2: Um uh, this might I don't know if you're going to answer possibly a, a the question that Tom was asking um with with your answer to my next question. So um you spoke earlier about how um you personally um d- aren't uh, sort of an advocate of the way that faith schools are exist currently. So um my question to you would be then what what's your vision for for what faith schools could be?
5: I think what faith schools, if we're going to use that term, by the way, (laughs) uh, can do best is to bring a clear sighted um, optimism and sense of values to bear into a community, into a learning environment where that's done well. It's tangible. It doesn't have to be purely the preserve of schools with a religious character at all. But um, they often seem to do it well. So my vision is exactly that, that um, education across the board is inspired by things like imagination and creativity, not just good marks. Things like um, forgiveness and generosity, not just abiding by good behaviour rules. Things like valuing each child for who they are rather than what they achieve.
2: And would you say that then that school, um, rather than selecting on the basis of faith or, um, you know, how how much your family goes to the local church would be like, this is the local school. This is the catchment area. Everyone's welcome into this school. Absolutely.
5: It's about what um, a faith community can offer in the wider community that they uh, live in.
0: Is there not a f- friction there? And I, I completely agree with that. And I think the best schools will be schools where um, not only the intake of the of the children reflects the local community, but the teachers as well. So it would kind of have an impact. That say, if you were in a predominantly uh, like Jewish area of North London, or places in Gateshead and Newcastle, Manchester, things like that. Um, you know, if your intake is, you know, not completely because it's not like these people live in completely segregated areas, but it was very very highly Jewish area. You would have more Jewish teachers. You would hope. You know, you want like if you're in a more BM, BAME area, we want more BAME teachers to to reflect that community there, and then that would kind of come through in the teaching. I mean, that's that's my idea. You know, if you have if you have a practice a member of any practicing faith community in the school, their values are going to come through when they do assemblies or they teach lessons, not in a kind of spooky strap them in, brainwash them sort of way, but just the values that they live their lives um, come through that. But is there not an issue that there are some faiths where actually the whole point is to be exclusive, like the whole the whole foundation of um, like Orthodox Jewish communities is that there is an us and them, and I I make no, absolutely no criticism of that, but that's that's kind of the whole point. Like the Church of England thing may work because it's very very open, but are there not? Do you not think there's always going to be some faith communities that are going to want completely separate things, and should we just say no? You're not allow them. <laughs> well, there is a, there's a wider question there about um,
5: to what extent uh, a society requires uh, its citizens to uh, engage more widely. Uh, it's hard to legislate against because it, it can be often like very case-by-case. Case. And also the examples that you mentioned are quite unusual. Mm. Um, I So I think it's hard to just say no. Um, there may also be virtues in society of saying, okay, well, we're going to let you do that, because even though you might be exclusive as a Mormon or something, um, we're not, and we're a society that will accept you and allow you to to do your own thing. Is the battle to be waged in education? Don't know.
1: Um, I've just now thought of a question. Should the Church of Scientology be allowed to open a free school? Well... If, if I'm not a
5: legal expert, but they could um, because they are now recognised as a religion. Um, and I'm not going to make any kind of public comment about what I think about Scientology
0: because I don't know enough about it. It's not... Uh, I but, don't think it would be free. I think they would do it as a fee-paying school. <laughs> they are a money-making exercise. I think that solves that.
2: I think also um, there's, there's a difference here with a... a, a presume with a voluntary controlled faith school and then there's a whole other set of issues with uh being able to open your own free school or academy here that need to be addressed but and also I think I'm going to be interesting because you said I don't know if my school if I'd call it a faith school so is there a difference here between what your sort of like idea of what that school could be in terms of faith, is different from um, the current set of faith schools that we kind of...
5: Yeah, so so it's like, in my experience of other Christians, there's broadly two kinds. There's the kind that want everyone to be a Christian just like them, and there's the kind who believe what they believe very strongly, but want that to be what people see, well, the fruits of what they believe to be what people see. So it's about what they're doing uh, rather than what they believe. So people see... Um, or experience uh, good things rather than be told to to have a good badge, and I think similar. Yeah, last that's
4: I think I come at this from a bit of a different angle because the way that you talk about the idea that you could have a uh, ideal situation where you've got um, religious faith schools um, that are open to people that have. Um, there's generally a positive ethos. It sounds really great, but I've I've been in those schools. I've worked in those schools. I've gone to those schools as a child. And uh, as a non-religious person, I always felt that everything about what they were talking about that was positive, that I thought, um, you know, about how, how one should be, was already um, what I believed a person should be without religion. And that everything uh, sort of that, that they were suggesting that, almost often speaking as if we're all a Christian or that we all at least, you know, adhere to like Christian values. And it's was like, well, yeah, that you can call them Christian values, but I think that I have those values not because they're Christian because you know, they're good values or good morals. And, um, it, it made me feel like an outsider and also teaching, um, in um, various different faith schools, um, different denominations of Christianity mostly. um, again, I felt like my view point, my lack of religion was something I sometimes had to hide or only reference very sparingly when only when asked directly. And um, yeah, I I would argue that no matter how much you try, uh, so long as you have religious schools, there is a dominance. Like in in, um, the UK, you know, I think Christian schools feel comfortable in in acting as if it's almost like um, a default, and you know some people are well, you know the UK is is Christian, but um, but still people, children make their own minds up, families make their own minds up, uh, and there are lots of other religions out there. You, you know, I wouldn't say that I could just um, go into another another religion school, and people would just um, be like, oh, you know. It's just a value, isn't it? No, it's it's a genuine religion, <laughs> like, um, and you either are or you aren't. So, uh, yeah, what would what would you say to that?
5: So. Well, I think your experience is is um, very sad and lamentable, and shouldn't be the case. Uh, as I've said, I think um, uh, certainly Christian schools ought to be places of hospitality and welcome more than anything else. And I've given examples of where that is the case, and in my own school. I um, was talking to parents at Sports Day. Uh, some parents didn't even know that it was a church school, but they thought the values were excellent. So the, the question then is, what do you need to be able to have a strong set of values? I don't think you need to be religious, but where there is in the country that we are um, in where there are communities that have that strong set of values, they are well-placed to be able to make them accessible and make a positive contribution. So the wider question, really, for me is, um, hopefully everyone thinks that faith communities have a positive contribution to make to society. The question is whether that should come into education or not. Um, for me, a school is more than just a apparatus of state and is very much about the people that make it up. And so... Uh, whilst I think that specifically religious teaching might better belong outside of the school maybe as an after school club or whatever uh that the ethos that those communities can bring to their wider local community um is hopefully well rooted um and to some extent tested and is to some extent uh making a uh a wider benefit that can be experienced by people beyond itself
4: okay so um to follow up that uh, i don't know if this how weird a question this is going to come out as so if if um if faith schools like have an inherent value um then what are your thoughts? Is this completely mad to have the idea of, rather than um, no faith or singular faith, have multi faith schools? So literally, really, like crossing across, quite different um, faith. Is that mad? Is that something that's happened before? Is that possible? What What are your thoughts?
5: Yeah, it's not mad at all. Um, I think it's awesome. I think the uh, the only example of that working that I can give is another inner city Church of England school where it's. Christian values have informed the values of um, everyone having something to contribute. So it's about stepping beyond uh, itself. And that's the kind of the key difference I would make really there between um, education for like ghetto communities, which is religious and schools which are contributed by a religious community to the wider community.
2: Um, So I think uh, multi-faith schools with a socialist character is the way forward. That's what I'm getting from, from all of the speakers today.
5: Not just schools. Yeah,
2: yeah.
4: Societies. I, I, I been... still think I'm tentatively against, but I definitely think I've heard some really interesting values um, and interesting points that I really think are yeah, worth mm. discussing.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for that, Vivian.
0: All right, thanks, uh, Vivian, for that really interesting conversation. I'm sure we'll catch up with more of those things. Um, You know, it's really interesting to to, to get going on some of these topics, like, you know, none of these things we can solve um, in one podcast. So we'll have to finish it next time we go for a beer together. Um, So thank you again for listening. We have been Requires Improvement. I've been your host, Nick, and today I've been joined by our guest. Vivian, thanks for having me. And our co-comrade hosts... Tom.
4: Anu. Charlie.
0: And Lee. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Um, thanks to everyone that's followed us and shared us so far. Um, please, you know, anyone you think that might be interested in this podcast, uh, please please send it over to them, whether they be colleague, um, friend, family... Anything like that? Any any trade units that would also be interested as well? Um, so our Twitter handle is uh, @requirespod uh, You can listen to us on SoundCloud, uh, and we're also available now on Spotify. So um, thanks everyone for listening. Bye bye. See you next time.
3: Bye. Bye.